from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Jack Gordon. Although Jack grew up in a religiously blended family, his Jewish culture from his father's side allowed him to grow up with a Jewish identity. As it so happened, his mother's extended family were Baha'is, and it was through one of his cousins that Jack took more interest in the Baha'i faith while in college. Jack eventually ended up in Madagascar, where he became confirmed in the Baha'i faith. He recently returned to the U.S. and is in the D.C. area watching over his uncle and working on a project called Payami Dust, which in Farsi means the message from the friend, which he explains in the interview. I started the interview by asking Jack where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. My father once described me as being a sandwich of half rye bread and half white. What he meant by that was I had a Jewish side and a um, sort of a waspy side of the family. And in my upbringing, it was kind of the, the both of those mashed together. So not quite totally the Jewish rye and not quite totally the white bread. And we grew up in suburban New Jersey, about a half an hour from New York City. It was a fairly pleasant place to grow up, a town called Westfield, which was the majority Christian of of various denominations, although it was predominantly white. Um, And at the same time, though, there was a a pretty uh, good-sized Jewish community that was there. And I was raised with a Jewish upbringing. My mom was of a Christian background, but was not a practicing Christian. She had no problem with my father, who um, certainly desired a lot more for his children, to be raised in a strong Jewish household. And that's what my sisters and I were brought up with. I have two younger sisters, and we were all raised going to Hebrew school and attended a conservative synagogue. We were all bar mitzvah at age 13. We all attended synagogues regularly on a weekly basis. We held the traditional Shabbat ceremony of lighting the candles and having challah bread and the blessing over the wine on Friday nights, which was our family time together. So that's how I identified very strongly growing up as a Jew, and that certainly shaped all of my childhood and, and existence as an adolescent. At the same time, we had this real 
tension in the household, I think, uh, reflecting on it, although it was, it was pretty apparent even back then because of this variance, I think, in terms of cultural upbringing. I don't think it was the only factor of tension in the household, but the fact that Christianity really from my father's perspective and from my father's family's perspective, at least the impression that I got growing up, Christianity was not a very good thing. And so even though my mom wasn't a practicing Christian in terms of going to church, there was still sort of a sightless, tasteless, soundless influence of Christianity, that type of Christianity in the household. And when we would get together with my cousins on her side of the family, um, we would have Christmas. We would have Hanukkah around this time of year. Is Hanukkah for this year. And when it was Christmas time, we would go down to Maryland and see my mother's side of the family that were from a Christian background. I'm pretty sure that my father was not entirely pleased with it, although we dutifully showed up every year. While I was growing up, I adopted that feeling. I didn't have a strong liking of Christianity. I didn't have a strong liking of Christmas. I was acutely aware that there was a ongoing history of wrongs that had been committed against the Jewish people in the name of Christianity. So the thing that defined me was a strong Jewish identity. And that strong Jewish identity took you through high school? It did, it did. As I said, at, at age 13, I was bar mitzvahed. I also, during the summers, attended a, a camp that we had found out about through the synagogue, which was affiliated with a, a Zionist youth organization. Although my family was not Zionist, I don't think but it seemed like it would, it would be a, a worthwhile activity for uh, the children in my family to, to attend this camp where essentially it was run like a, a kibbutz, the type of self-sufficient farm and community on which the state of Israel was founded by, by the Jewish settlers as you know, the, the way the state of Israel is as we know it today. So we, in the summers, you know, after... Of course, my public school had concluded, and the year of Hebrew school that was a couple times a week had concluded. I would go to this camp in Pennsylvania. It was, in some ways, very much like normal camp, in the sense that we were broken up into age groups, and we all lived in bunk bed situation in little cabins on the, on the campgrounds, and we had a mess hall and everything, and we played sports and games. But unlike the camps that I think friends of mine went to where it was a sports camp or a theater camp or something like that. Our activities were something like reenacting the Six-Day War and learning about the history of the conflict in Israel, and, or I guess less so much about the, the conflict and more about the struggle for independence. Um, Israel and certainly the, the right that Jews had to be the land in Israel was, was something that was heavily promoted, and, and although I didn't really understand it then, I thought it was a lot of fun, and again, it encouraged a strong Jewish identity. I didn't really understand the thing that they were really trying to impress upon us, which was for us to move to Israel when we were older and, and to settle there, and you know, or at least 
if we were living in the States, to be part of the Jewish diaspora that certainly heavily supported the state of Israel and its rights. I think that perhaps ironically or perhaps not, the older that the kids got and the more aware that they were, a lot of kids, some of course did go that route, they became very strong in their, in, in their support of Israel as a state and, and issues surrounding that. But many of them had a strong distaste for what it was that was spread as propaganda. I think that that largely came from the fact that throughout a very strong message of engagement in social action and direct action. So what we had was a breeding ground for very informed, very opinionated, and capable young activists. Young kids around the ages of 12 and 13 were participating in demonstrations for whatever uh, social issues. Labor certainly was a big issue. Women's rights, globalization, and seeing justice and equality in our globalized world. I, I don't know if I was in the minority in terms of being blissfully ignorant in terms of the way that the world worked and the social affairs and so on. A strong number of my friends took the messages that they were being taught in terms of being active in, in their communities and fighting for rights and so on, and brought that throughout their activities and their lives at home, whether they were studying at the Solomon Schechter School, a private Jewish school, or in the public schools like I was. I think that that was something that had a sonic boom effect that I didn't recognize until later on after I had graduated from high school how deeply that call to social action had been impressed on me. And it was something that I, I really valued later on when I did become a lot more engaged in direct action and fighting for social justice issues as a college student. So tell me about after high school then. I actually ended up in your neck of the woods. I wanted to study film. I had been involved in video production. We had a local... Uh, public access TV station, rather, based out of my high school. Very rudimentary, but it broadcast programming a few hours every day. And I had been involved in that and really got a, a liking for that work. And so when I came to schools, I, initially I had wanted to get as far away from New Jersey and the East Coast as possible. And, and I thought about going to California. And I actually went out there to visit and was totally in love with it. And went to Los Angeles, wanted to go out there. And the more I thought about it, I wasn't too taken with the style of teaching that was going on at the schools that I saw there. Because it seemed like it was just people that were interested in being part of the Hollywood system. And, and I wanted to make films that really mattered, or at least be involved in media production that mattered and, and wasn't engaged as a tool in um, a larger social movement or something that would create an impact in the world at large. I can't remember exactly when it happened, but somebody suggested that if I wanted a different style of learning, I look at Hampshire College. I went up there with my mother. I remember it was a very rainy day around Labor Day, which was right around my birthday. Pouring rain and totally clouded over and cold and I hardly wanted to get out of the car. But as soon as I landed at Hampshire campus, I was totally in love. I thought that the style of schooling there was excellent. Are you familiar with the way that the school operates in Hampshire? Well, I know that it's an alternative college, 
not your traditional learning style of college, but that's about all I know. I think they've altered the methods of classes in the last few years, but the way it worked when I first showed up and what really won me over was the idea that there were no grades. There were written evaluations. I'm pretty sure that that's still true because that was their strong selling point. Basically, you could pick whatever you wanted to study from what they had available, and, and obviously they're linked into that great five college system in the Pioneer Valley, so you could take classes at UMass, you could take classes at Mount Holyoke or Smith or Amherst, Gooby-Doo system that they have there. And the people that I met there were these young people who had such a command of language and spoke with such authority about the subjects that they were studying. They were studying um, political theater performance. They were studying um, sustainable agriculture, and they had a smithing shop, and all of this this really far-out stuff that people were really open and free to engage in as much as they wanted to because we were building our own curriculum and working with advisors. I went back, you know, my senior year of high school to my, uh, to my guidance counselor, and I said, this is the school that I want to go to, and usually they try and pair you up with somebody that had been to that school before or something like that, and nobody in, in the roles of, of my high school had ever been to Hampshire College. So I was breaking new ground. And I applied early, I got in, and I went there. And I lasted about a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? The, the thing that I didn't understand going there was that one part of it to be passionate, and I, I certainly was. I knew very much that I wanted to make movies, and I wanted to make movies that mattered. But beyond that, I didn't really have a good idea of how to go about doing it. And so I kind of floundered because the Hampshire system works great if the person is self-motivated and has a, has a certain sense of the direction that they're going to go in and how to go about asking the questions that they need to do if they need to um, get guidance from people, to be very forward in asking for advice and know the right people to go to for that advice. I was 100% on the first part and, and not so much on the uh, knowing how to go about it. After my first year, I decided that I, I think I needed to, to find another school to be at because I wasn't getting very far in the system. You know, you sort of have to graduate every year to go on towards your major or your final project and so on. And uh, I wasn't getting very far along in that process. So I decided I would transfer I had some friends that were studying film and theater at Emerson College in Boston. I applied there, and, and I got in, and I went over to, uh, to Boston, which is also kind of ironic. I, I really didn't want to end up in Massachusetts, and certainly not Boston, because everybody from my high school was, was headed in that direction. I was trying to break the mold on that, and I thought, well, I guess there's no sense fighting it. Boston has, has a couple of good schools. <laughs> so you finished your film curriculum at Emerson? I did. And the thing that I took away from that experience was I brought with me what I had learned from Hampshire, which was going right to the teachers, right to the professors on the first day, introducing myself and getting to know them and getting to know what it was that we were going to study. And each semester I would do that at Emerson because it seemed like that was the logical thing to do. At Emerson, which is not a big school, but it's a little bit larger than than Hampshire's, the students didn't really do that a lot. 
so the teachers were surprised and, and pleasantly so that it built great strong um, friendships and they became my mentors throughout my time there and a number of them are even today very strong friends who I call on often. The other thing that I took from Hampshire was again this blossoming social engagement. The kids at Hampshire, a lot of them like the ones that I went to camp with, were involved in an activist lifestyle. People cared passionately about various social justice issues. That was something that I found was a crucial element to the work that I was doing. I started to get more into documentary work, and I wanted to pursue pursue subjects that had a relevance in the day that we were in. And so I found a set of people that, that I had a like mindset and started helping each other out on various artistic projects that really pushed the envelope in terms of having a uh, progressive perspective on life and also taking action right there locally in our school. There was a labor fight that was happening on our campus at the time. There was a lot of issues having to do with the workers, the cafeteria staff and the security guards. Ours was a strong, although small, network of very determined and committed individuals who were saying, hey, you know, this school is, is not just about the students, it's, it's about the, uh, the people that work here, and we are, in a sense, a team, and administration is treating one of us badly, one of the groups, one of the elements. We have to stand up and fight for the rights of the other ones, and out of the, the different groups, the professors, the workers, the staff, and the students, the students really have the most power because there's are the dollars that are being put to use to make the school run. So for um, the last two years of my time at Emerson, I was engaged in organizing the, the community on campus and really fighting for the professor's rights. Subsequently, I didn't spend a lot of time in classes. The Iraq War was announced in 2003, and so that a lot of things were shook up around that, so there was a lot of work to be done that had to do with, with our life outside of class. It was a very exciting time. Mm. And it was also around the time that I started investigating the, the Baha'i faith. So before we get into the Baha'i faith, let's delve into what your relationship with Judaism was at this point in your life compared to sure. in high school. I went through what is probably a typical response for a lot of kids moving away from home and losing touch maybe with the community, the religious community that they've grown up with. You know, I went to the same synagogue my entire life. And then, of course, going to Hebrew school and on the high holidays. And when I went to college, the activity dropped off. There were certainly a large number of Jewish students, both at Hampshire and at Emerson, but there wasn't an active religious community. I think without that insistence, it just sort of faded into the background. The identity was still there, but the need to go to synagogue, for example, was not there. The other element to it, I think, was very much that Judaism for me was more of a cultural experience, much more than a religious one. I think that that's the really interesting thing about Judaism, is that it is simultaneously a religious practice, a cultural practice, a family identity, 
and in the United States, just a way of being. They certainly weave into each other, but they can stand distinct from one another, particularly when we're talking about the less religious aspects of it. And growing up, I never really had a question in my mind about whether or not there was a God. It didn't really matter to me. I didn't ask myself that question. Even as I was preparing for my bar mitzvah, even as I was learned Hebrew growing up and prayers, we were really invoking the name of God. That part of it wasn't what mattered in the situation. It was that it was our family and our culture. I can remember at my one of my sister's bar mitzvahs when I was um, a senior in high school. You know, our entire family was there, and certainly we invited my mother's family. One of her cousins, I think it was, who came from a much stronger Christian tradition, evangelical background, she turned to me and she said, well, it's a really beautiful thing that we're all here today praising God. And I just gave her this sort of cockeyed look like, I guess so. (laughs) That thought never crossed my mind at all. I think either watching my sister do her bat mitzvah or me during my bar mitzvah or anything. I think in that sense, while the cultural traditions stayed with me as being very important, they were always framed in terms of family. When I was away from family, there wasn't really a need to seek out synagogue. Actually, it's changed, again, I would say sort of ironically, as I became involved in the Baha'i faith, that uh, renaissance of uh, an understanding and a, and a drawing close to my Jewish identity has really emerged and, and blossomed much stronger, I think, even than it was during the younger years of my life. I'd like to save that because that sounds like an interesting thing to discuss. But before we do, I'd like for you to describe for me how it was that you ran into the Baha'i faith and your reaction to discovering it. The family that I told you about that I would spend Christmas with when I was younger, almost none of my immediate cousins on my mom's side were practicing Christians, actually. They were all practicing Baha'is, which made the event of Christmas even stranger because we were, again, like with the Jewish holidays, it was much more of a cultural thing. And although I didn't really understand the relationship between the Baha'i faith and Christianity when I was younger, it seemed to me to be empty of any relationship to Jesus Christ. So I didn't quite understand even then why it was that we were doing that. If, if there were this Baha'i thing and we were Jewish, and you know, where the, where's the Christians in this mix? And why do we have a tree? And why are we dressing up my maternal grandma's house in red and green? But I never, at the same time, delved much into what this Baha'i faith thing was. And I didn't learn the story about it until much later, probably when I was somewhere in college. I knew that my my cousins and my aunt and uncle and my maternal grandmother were Baha'is, but I didn't know what that was. I thought it was some sort of new-agey religion. The only thing that was for certain was that, that I would hear stories about them traveling Wherever it was that they lived, actually my cousins grew up in Benin in West Africa. My aunt and her husband, who had learned about the faith from my grandmother, after they got married, they promptly moved to Benin to assist the Baha'i community there, and they raised their children there. 
So I would see my cousins about once a year, probably around the Christmas holiday. I didn't know anything about the faith except for the fact that wherever they traveled and wherever they went, they seemed to have a place to stay. And they seemed to be meeting all these people that they immediately had a kinship with, they immediately had a sense of familiarity and strong bonds of friendship, and that was very attractive to me, this idea of traveling and being able to stay wherever. Because actually in in my family growing up, we had a pretty good international mix as well. I grew up in a house where we had uh, an extra room or an extra couple of rooms, and my parents were strong advocates of exposing their children to different cultures and opening their home to um, people that that were in need of a place to stay. And there would be an exchange of either some help around that house. So the idea of having this international view on life and on community was very strong. And I really was attracted to how my cousins were living that. And also, whenever I would go down to visit them in the Maryland area, once they moved back to the States from Benin, and I attended what I think were Baha'i events. I can't remember it ever being explicitly said that this was a Baha'i holy day or it was uh, a community meeting or whatever, but I remember that there were tons of people from all these different backgrounds, and there was always a lot of good food. When I got to about the middle of my college career, I was starting to have the opportunity to talked to my cousin who was going to school not too far from Boston in Providence, and we would get together every once in a while. And at one point, there was some tipping point where we started having deep conversations about life and about what direction we were going in and what we wanted to do with ourselves. And at some point, it turned to religion, and he was just really solidifying his identity as a Baha'i, and we started talking about it. And I can't, for the life of me, remember what it was about it. There was a voice that said, you should investigate this, you should look into this, you should ask more questions, but something changed. We would talk about the Baha'i faith every now and again, I think was over a a couple of visits between the summer and fall. And I saw my grandmother, and I asked her what the faith was about. And, you know, we had a brief conversation about religion. And she gave me two books. She gave me um, Baha'u'llah and the New Era. And she gave me Some Answered Questions, which is written by Abdul Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah, the prophet of the Baha'i faith. I had these books with me, and I would read them at the job that I had on campus. People were moving in and out of this equipment, a rental facility. And I would read this stuff, and even though I didn't have a background in the New Testament and all that, the ones about spirituality and about the purpose of life, about the way that we're supposed to interact with the world and regard our fellow human beings, these things were very exciting to me. There was even a page loose, I think, in, in some answered questions, and it had fallen out at some point, and, and it was a prayer. I took this prayer, and I hung it up in my room, and I didn't really know why I was doing that, but I felt like this was going to somehow act as a bit of protection for me. At the same time, I considered myself to be strongly rooted in my Jewish tradition and everything. I felt like there was no 
problem for me investigating this other thing, except that I still had to get over this issue of Jesus Christ. I didn't really know what to make of that. Baha'u'llah was a strange other thing, and really I didn't know so much about him at the time, but I knew that Jesus Christ was something that I was totally resistant to growing up, and I couldn't resolve that issue of certainly believing in him, even worse, actually thinking that he was had some sort of divine nature, because that felt like, to me, it was going to align me with all of these things that I had grown up either fearing or resenting or being angry with or looking at with total disregard and disgust. That was the mode that I operated in, except for one aspect was that I loved gospel music. And music seems like that's always been something that can create that bridge or can heal that wound or whatever the case is. And gospel was definitely like that for me. And it was so wonderful because You know, on the Jewish side of things, I love klezmer music, and I love to hear the cantor sing in our synagogue growing up. These things were gorgeous to me. My heart would soar whenever I would hear them. And then when I would ever hear gospel songs, my heart felt exactly the same way. I felt so energized and thrilled and totally joyous. And so there was a concert that was happening. This was the um, the fall of my third year of school. It was a family band featuring steel guitar, which I, I really like. Oddly enough, it was in a bar. So I went and I saw this family band playing in this bar. And I was alone. I had asked some of the friends to come with me, but no one could make it. I had gone down the entire list of all these people that I thought would really love the music, and no one could make it. So I just decided to go by myself. And I went to this bar... And the band started playing, and it was rollicking and great, and everybody was clapping, and and I was having such a great time. And then they got to this one point in the middle of the set, and the leader of the band, he introduced this next number, and he said it was going to be a call and response. And he was going to call out different lines, like, who do you love, or who's going to save us? And we were going to say Jesus. Oh, boy. (laughs) And... You could hear a pin drop when he said that. You know, everybody was enjoying the music, but all of a sudden, wait a minute, let's reevaluate what are we going to do here. And he knew this audience. (laughs) He knew them so well because he was anticipating just that reaction. He looked at us kind of sideways with this big grin on his face, and he said, all you have to do is picture something that you love. And... I'm just sharing with you that what I love is Jesus. And all I'm asking you to do is say that name. Say that name, Jesus. For me, all of a sudden, this whole world just opened up. Although it wasn't the end of my understanding of the relationship between the different religions, what I became aware of at that moment was we can call God, God. We can call, you know, in my understanding at that time, I said, you could call God Jesus. You could call God Allah. It's really just different names for the same spirit of love and unity. 
And I was up at the front row, and I was clapping, and I was stomping my feet. I was just yelling Jesus at the top of my lungs. I could not believe it. When I went home that night, you know, I took the bus, but I was flying. If your father could only see you now. <laughs> well, you know, that, that's sort of a different issue. But the, it was such a revelation for me because I felt like all of this baggage that I had felt about Christianity was lifted in a one moment. I didn't really have Muslim friends around. If there were Muslims at my school, I didn't know them. That wasn't so much of an obstacle for me. It was like this foreign entity. It wasn't something that I was engaging with on a day-to-day basis. And I think for in a certain extent, it made it easier for me later on to be okay with Islam, certainly because the art that comes out of the Muslim world is so amazing. I would just look at the art and feel this same feeling, like when I listened to gospel music, like when I listened to klezmer music or saw all the beautiful art that I knew from Jewish artists. I could appreciate that, and so that was a door for me to allow Islam into my heart. But for Christianity, I had a list a mile long of reasons why Jesus Christ was a fake and everything having to do with Christianity was corrupt. So to get over that was huge, and I felt wonderful. And shortly afterwards, I felt emboldened to call up the Baha'i National Center, and I called them up. You know, a very pleasant person was uh, answered the phone, and, and I asked if I could find out if there were any Baha'is in the college population of the Boston area. They said, yes, there are. And I said, well, are there any at Emerson College? And they said, yep, we have one person. And I said, great. And they said, here's his address. And I said, wait a minute, that's my address. (laughs) To be fair, it was a dormitory. They said, well, he lives on such and such a floor. And I actually knew a friend of mine, another friend of mine, was, was the residence assistant on that floor. So I went to them first, and I said, do you know this guy? Have you ever met him before? Immediately they said, oh, my God, he is the most wonderful person. In fact, I think the actual line was, he's the most solid dude in America. And it turned out to be true. (laughs) I knocked on his door. I think I left a note. I said, hi, I'm Jack. When I met him, he had a quiet radiance about him, very humble, sort of soft-spoken, but just spilling over with kindness and a real sense of friendship immediately. And I started attending with him. He invited me to get together with some other Baha'is in the area. And I had such a wonderful time with these people. They were of many diverse backgrounds. Emerson's a communication school, so pretty much everybody is involved in the arts in some way. But these were students at Boston University or the Conservatory or uh, Northeastern, what have you. And we attended these firesides, these gatherings that were happening over at Boston University, which was the hub for the Baha'i students and their friends at that time in the Boston area. Every couple of weeks, we would go and see movies. We would just hang out. Obviously, I got to know this really dear friend who was at Emerson. and I just had a wonderful time. 
it was like a parallel life that I was leading because at the same time I was getting deeper and deeper into my um, activist politics. So we were organizing and, and meeting all the time and skipping class to figure out what the next action was going to be out in the streets or what have you. And when I got kind of sick of the infighting or everybody's drama, I would skip over and, and go hang out with the um, Baha'i kids, and it was just such a genuinely loving and open experience. And there was always something new, but a consistent level of love and friendship with these young people. And actually, it took me quite a while for me to figure out that there were Baha'is that were younger than 18 and o- older than 23. <laughs> I didn't really know any during that time. What caused you to cross over the line to actually becoming a Baha'i? I mean, I got all the social principles. That was something that was kind of a no-brainer for me. I liked everything that I heard. I liked the community a lot. But I had a couple things that I needed to get over. You know, one of them was trying to understand why it was that drugs were prohibited. I didn't do hard drugs, but I did them casually, and but although with enough regularity that it was a fun activity that I didn't particularly see any reason why I needed to give that up. I didn't drink alcohol. I actually thought alcohol was a terrible thing because I unfortunately grew up with alcohol abuse in my home, and so that created a very severe and negative impression on me pot, I didn't feel like it was hurting anybody, and and I wasn't doing it seriously enough for me to consider it hurting myself. But in the summer between my third and fourth year of school, I was blessed with a unique opportunity to go with my cousin, the same cousin who was a Baha'i, the same cousin who had grown up in Benin. His family had, after a few years back in the States, moved to Madagascar which is an island nation off the coast of East Africa in the Indian Ocean. They were involved in development work there. Between his college semesters, he would go back and forth to Madagascar to see them. Uh, Upon graduating, he wanted to continue his studies. He was studying international development, and he wanted to do it with a, a project that he had been involved in, part of his research in Madagascar. And he said to me one of the times that we got together, why don't we propose to the project that my father had worked for to shoot a documentary about their program? And we can sort of pitch ourselves as this team that knows international development and filmmaking really well, and we'll get ourselves there, and and then we can produce this piece and be sort of like an internship. They can take us all around to all their sites. And I thought that was great. That would be a really exciting project to do because it was totally different, totally off the beaten path, helping a project that I thought was phenomenal, which was a holistic approach to community development where more questions were asked than answers were given for the community. He and I um, wrote up this proposal. We went to, to Madagascar and were there for two months and during which time we stayed with a Baha'i family. It was actually an expat family. I think you actually interviewed Greg Dahl for one of your programs. Yes, that's right. And so we stayed with Greg's family. 
And it was the first time that outside of my interaction with my cousins and my aunt and uncle, I was experiencing what it was like to be in a Baha'i household. It made a very strong impression on me because, again, there was this overwhelming sense of love. I saw my, my immediate family, my parents and my sisters and I, and, and I knew that we didn't have a really great sense of unity in our family. I said before, there was this uh, unfortunate alcohol abuse that was prevalent in my day-to-day experience growing up, and I feel like I was lucky that we didn't get the harsh end of physical violence as being a reality in my home, but there was a, certainly another type of violence that was present there, and that was a lot of cruel words that were cast back and forth and shouting that happened very often, if not on a daily basis growing up. So I didn't really know what it was like for a family to genuinely consult together to make decisions where the parents were really on an equal playing field and felt as though they were partners. My parents certainly loved us, the children, that wasn't questioned, but being in a family where, where that partnership was intact and worked all the way around, no matter how young or old the children were, I thought was, was a beautiful thing. And I saw it in my cousin's family, and I saw it in the family that I was staying with in Madagascar. And I think that that had a profound impact on me and the direction that I wanted to take my life as an adult and have assure to be um, a reality for my children when I grew up. So the way that the summer worked, we would take these trips out to the field, to very rural areas, and we would visit these communities in the bush where the, the development project was taking place and see the health initiatives and the environmental initiatives, the agricultural initiatives and everything that were being implemented by this group of NGOs, of non-governmental organizations. And then we would skip back to the capital, Antanarivo, and stay with this family. So it was a back-and-forth jump. And the times out in the field were about a, a week each. And one of the times that I was out there was about halfway through on the trip. I can remember I was sitting in bed or laying in bed, and the lights were off. I was listening to some music. And I was just thinking about the direction that my life was going in and the things that I'd seen and experienced over the past year. And just as quickly as I had had that sense of understanding, that openness, that awakening at the gospel concert, this other light bulb went on in my head, and I understood why it was that drugs were not helpful. I understood that I could drop this thing, and it would be at absolutely no cost. There would be no reason why I couldn't just walk away from it. And more to the point, my life would be a lot easier if I just didn't do it anymore because there wouldn't be any of this need to you know, sneak around. Obviously, it's an illegal thing. You, can't, you don't really need to deal with it. If you do, you kind of have to keep it under wraps in most environments. I just thought, oh, well, that's easy. I can just stop. And the next day, I was very excited, and I told my cousin this, that I had had this understanding just all of a sudden come to me. And then I just started going on. I think about about how great everything was and how the, the Baha'is were great. You know, we were interacting with 
the uh, local Baha'i community, the Malagasy Baha'i community on a regular basis, and they so welcoming to me being a foreigner. I just felt so much at home in this place that was so far away from my own home. And I felt like it had everything to do with the Baha'i faith. And so my cousin just very plainly asked me, he said, so it sounds like you're ready, are you, are you going to declare? I just sort of sat there and I thought, well, I guess I should. And when I got to the family's residence, I sort of put myself together and, and I felt like I was going to make this big statement about my faith and, and it was a very big deal to me. And, and I, I went up to, the, to Greg, the father in the house, and I said, uh, Greg, well, I've, I've thought about it and, and I've decided I want to be a Baha'i. He just looked at me and smiled quietly like he kind of does. And he just said, okay, that's good. And I couldn't believe it because this was a huge thing that I had come to. He just took it as, as nothing at all, like I had said that going out for some milk or something like that. And then he said, oh, and it's, it's good timing, too, because we have a children's class here at the house every uh, weekend, and they have a graduation tomorrow. So the entire community is going to be here tomorrow. So you can go and introduce yourself to the entire community, too, and, and tell them. I'm sure they'll be very happy about it. <laughs> so the next day, there must have been 50 people, 60 people or something that showed up, all of these kids and all of these adults. And there I am, this American guy that had shown up just a few weeks before, having absolutely no French background and certainly no Malagasy background and having to just sort of stammer through this public declaration while somebody translated what I was saying. Yeah. And everybody was ecstatic. They cheered and, and applauded and gave me lots of hugs and everything. And, and it was a beautiful welcoming into the community that I felt so much at home with this new family. That was the beginning of my life as a Baha'i and my life in Madagascar, because I ended up staying there for a few more years after that. So what was your father's reaction to you becoming a Baha'i? Well, I had this email list that I, I was keeping updated with my travels and adventures and what I was seeing. I would write articles every few days to let everybody know about what was going on in Madagascar. And when I made my declaration, I figured I should let folks know about it. I limited it to my family because I felt like they were the most important people to know about it. It was kind of a mixed bag because some people in the family said, great, I'm glad that you're happy or found something that you're happy. There were other people that said, I don't understand why people just decide to leave the Jewish community when we could be so much stronger if people stayed and tried to work at it. But my father, he was kind of like indifferently accepting of it at that time. Now, Unfortunately, since then, it's come to light that it's been a harder, sore point for him than I originally anticipated in the first couple of years. It's been quite the opposite for me. As I said earlier, I, the sense of my Jewish identity, in my opinion, has only grown stronger because, for me, Judaism is about learning, is about investigation. I mean, the entire Jewish tradition is based on this idea of questioning often God himself repeatedly, and depending on the person's interpretation of the school of thought, questioning whether or not God is a moral being, which is a 
strange thing to think about, I think, from the Baha'i perspective, because the Baha'i perspective is that God is the embodiment of all of these good qualities. That's where all these good qualities come from, from that essence that is inherently good. It can be nothing but good and just and kind and loving. But from the Jewish perspective, either throughout the Bible or the very strong, very serious Talmudic tradition, or just by virtue of the lamentable experience of the Jewish people throughout the many years that the community has been around through the diaspora, Jews have been persecuted and had to suffer. And so there's a lot of reasons to ask why, or why us, or why is this happening? And for someone to seemingly move away from that is a very big deal. You know, it's almost a bigger deal than for someone to be the type of Jew that doesn't go to synagogue regularly, or doesn't keep kosher, or doesn't keep the Sabbath, or even doesn't have a bar mitzvah. All of these things, I think, are taken with a shrug, because people understand that there are many different ways to be a Jew and to express one's relationship, I think, with Judaism, with Jewish culture. And if someone doesn't really feel like going to synagogue, being a uh, yeshiva bacher, as they say, that's okay. And I think that that was kind of the path that I was going on before I learned about the Baha'i faith. I would probably raise my kids in a Jewish environment, but it, it wasn't really a serious scholarly Jewish environment. But now, as a Baha'i, I'm ecstatic when I learn about the Torah and, and investigate on a regular basis of what the lessons are from the Old Testament, what the stories are of the various prophets and their relationship with God, and what the various Talmudic scholars have to say about it, what the contemporary scholars have to say about it. These are things that are, are wonderfully exciting, and on top of it, they have a beautiful relevance to the other things that I, I learn about when I in investigate Christianity or Christian thought or Muslim thought. I feel like it informs and solidifies my identity as a Baha'i, and I feel like that understanding reinforces my feeling as someone who is Jewish, who is a Jew, because I still feel that way. I feel that way very strongly, and, and I plan to raise my children with that same understanding and respect. We've run out of time, but there's one other area I'd like to have you talk about, and that's your current project that you're working on. As I said, I had been in Madagascar with that same cousin, and we started a media production company in Madagascar. And then last year, uh, last fall, I was getting ready to think about coming back to the States, and my father said that if I was thinking of coming back, it would be good if I considered looking after um, some affairs of my uncle, who is a high-functioning autistic and has lived independently for the last decade and a half, but was having some other health complications. And he lives in the Washington, D.C. area. So I decided to come back to the States, and being of service to my uncle was a great opportunity. And when I arrived here, on the first day that I arrived, I met a Persian friend in the Baha'i community who worked at a Baha'i television radio station, which broadcasts 
Farsi language programming into Iran. And when I met him, I said, what are you talking about? What TV and radio station? What is that? And he told me that it was an initiative, and the purpose of it is to present accurate information about the Baha'i faith and its community to the Farsi-speaking public in Iran. And the reason why this is important is because the Baha'is in Iran are heavily persecuted by the government there. Iran, or Persia, as it was called in the 1800s, is the, is the birthplace of the Baha'i faith, and there are some 200,000 Baha'is that still live there, and they are denied fundamental civil and human rights, such as denial of education, access to education, they can't own property, hold certain types of jobs, and increasingly over the last couple of years have been subject to um, harassment and imprisonment under flimsy charges, and people are pretty afraid that it's going to get worse before it gets better. So the work that I now am involved in here at this station, this team, which is under the name of the Baha'i International Radio Service, or in Persian it's better known as Payam Edust, which is the message of the friend. I help to produce the television program that gets broadcast on Persian satellite TV provider. And we also have a radio program that goes out once a day. The television program is once a week. And it's really just to provide folks in Iran, in the Middle East, or largely the Farsi-speaking world, wherever they may reside and are able to access this show, either on Internet or through the broadcast, with accurate information and a response to allegations that are launched against the Baha'i community, for example, in the mainstream government-supported media or any other news that goes on regarding the human rights violations as they also are, for example, in Egypt. So it's very exciting work. It's very fulfilling. I'm, I feel enthusiastic every day about being able to put my craft and my um, skills that I learned in school to work serving the faith as hard as it was for me to move back to the States because I really liked living abroad. It's a nice middle ground because I get to go to work in Iran every day in the best sense of the word. A lot of the people here are, are refugees and asylees whose families face persecution themselves who escaped with the assistance of various aid organizations. And so it's the, the work here is, is quite real, quite live for everyone that, that works here. As one of the few non-native Persians that work here, it's really a bounty to be able to, to share in this service with them. So, Jack, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's been a real joy and an honor to be invited to participate. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jack Gordon, a Baha'i who grew up in the Jewish faith. He is now working on a media project called Payami Dus to assist in writing the wrong information disseminated by those who hate the Baha'i faith. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.bahai.org where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.